Hello. I was wondering where you were. I'm glad you made it. Were you able to find your pillow? Oh, now that makes complete sense. No, we haven't always had a camp out to celebrate the end of summer. But this year, because Camp ASMR was extended, this closing episode happened to line up with Labor Day weekend and the podcast anniversary. Yes, it's hard to believe it's been three years since we started recording the podcast. I beg your pardon? Oh, thank you. What a lovely idea. Dr. Andrew Michaels will be thrilled. Yes, he's here somewhere. That's his chair right there. Hmm? Oh, that's right. He and Milo went back to his car to get the marshmallows. They'll be back in just a minute. So, we have the mustard and ketchup and all of that over here. Chips. And now your cookies. Some fruit and vegetables if you want some. And the soda is on ice right over there. Yes, those big red coolers are ice water. And the blue ones are Milo's famous iced tea. I know, me too. And Marvin is over there getting the hot dogs ready. Yes, it looks like he's seen you. Oops. No, Marvin, don't worry about it. We brought more than enough, I promise. Oh, you're right. He'll need another package now if you don't mind taking it to him. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. It's a beautiful night. Oh, yeah, the campfire's perfect, isn't it? I'm glad everybody likes the lawn chairs we're using. Everyone set up with their campsite all right? Tents are all ready to go and inspected? Yep. Clean, clear safety report from everyone? Good. I know. S'mores galore. <laughs> it's time to relax. Our big Labor Day campfire close out the summer oh I know I keep promising scary stories and original cryptids and paranormal adventures that no one has ever heard of before but can I deliver especially spur of the moment like this where I just sit down and start talking is that possible or is it all planned out do I have little notes hidden in my shirt pocket. Mm. I think I'm going to wing it tonight. I think I'm just going to sit back and relax and really enjoy this fire that's laid out right before my eyes. So soothing, comforting. I know, we have the cheap old hot dogs, not the butcher shop hot dogs. You gotta get the cheap ones. They just swell all up, burn perfectly. 
You can't eat a hot dog without some burn marks on it. it just tastes better, doesn't it? Get that fire smell and taste in them. Mmm. Something about a hot dog. Like they always tease lips and butts, but I love lips and butts if that's all they are. <laughs> Worms, yeah. All the stories you hear. But they put everything in the hot dog. Well, we didn't spare any expense. These are the expensive ballparks. Ooh. Yeah, they're still a cheap... Squoze out extruded hot dog. Yeah. I know, can you pass the mustard over here? I love mustard on a hot dog. I like American cheese on my hot dog too. It really tastes good. I love it you put the American cheese under the hot dog so it melts under it, not on top. Yeah. And it's caught between the bun and the hot dog and it melts right down in. It just tastes so good. I don't mind ketchup and relish, but I'm not huge. Like, I don't have to have it, you know? But, uh, you know, I'm really basically a mustard guy. Mm-hmm. A hot dog, a Coke, and a small bag of Lay's potato chips. I'm done. And none of that is good for me. Not one thing about that is healthy or good for me. A hot dog, Lay's potato chips... And an ice-cold Coke. What a horrible, horrible unhealthy meal. But that's like the classic. Everybody loves it. Everybody wants it. It's That's America for you. I don't know. I can't explain it either. Do you want to hear a story? You guys ready? Okay, we'll sit down. Everybody sit down and I'll start telling you a silly... Scary, creepy ghost story. Well, this one's really weird. Because it takes us all the way back to the beginning. That's right. I started recording these stories, these podcasts, three years ago. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the very first story was me writing down and telling you the tale of a divergent evolutionary story about the marsupial humans. Do you remember that? Do you remember that story? Now, we've talked about the marsupial humans before. They look and act just like normal human beings. You know, kind of like how there's fish that resemble each other, but they're not actually related. Or how the Tasmanian tiger looks identical to a modern canine dog. But it's a marsupial. It's not related to the dog at all. It's like that. And there's always those rodent species and non-rodent species. They all look like mice. They all look like rats. But they're not. They're not connected. That's kind of what this divergent evolution is. Back in the past, on isolated Australia, human beings evolved from the marsupial line of creatures. The women have a pouch and everything they do. It's really kind of different. I was going to use a different adjective to describe it, but let's just call it different. 
course their babies don't stay in the pouch as long as normal marsupials. No, no, no. They've graduated to incubators and different scientific uh, creations to speed the process up and free the women from carrying a baby in their pouch for so long. But they are not mammals, not truly mammals, and they can't interbreed with humans. They are a separate, distinct race of marsupial humans, creatures that resemble um, the ape lineage that is humanity. Very, very strange. But they couldn't be nicer people. They just prefer to have their privacy. They are isolationists and choose not to intermingle with humanity as a whole because of the differences. You could imagine if they fell in love, well, you could have a relationship, but you could never have a child. And it would be stressful on both of them, realizing that they were two different species. I don't call it racism between two species. I think it's more of an isolationist to keep themselves from entering into a situation where they literally can't fix it. You can't change who you are. I think the time for them is coming where they could intermingle with human beings and human beings could understand it. Now that we have more of a grasp on alien life forms and alien intelligences, they would just be another species that's different than humans. And hopefully they will someday feel welcomed into the community of humanity in the general knowledge department and everyone will be aware of their existence. You do understand I have to swear you to secrecy and this next part of the story is really secret. Above top secret. Ooh, above top secret. <laughs> Invasive species is another problem we have, especially in Australia and the United States. There are people who collect animals. They do. They want a Burmese python from Burma, and they're not indigenous to the United States, but they're a great pet. The problem is Burmese pythons tend to get very big, and they have a lot of maintenance and take up a lot of space. And people get themselves into different financial difficulties or just need to move. And it's much easier to just open up the cage and let the Burmese python loose in, say, the Florida Everglades than to sell it or whatever because it's not necessarily legal to own one. And people do this all the time. The common little rabbit, in the North American rabbit, is loose upon Australia and it never dealt with a rodent like that before. The fauna and the animals around it were not prepared to deal with a rabbit. And it did a lot of damage to the ecosystem and caused problems for the native species there. One of the most invasive and scary creatures in Australia, believe it or not, is the domestic house cat. 
That's right. A little, tiny, cute, beautiful, cuddly, domestic kitty cat. They didn't evolve or exist on Australia in hundreds of thousands of years. The cat species just doesn't live in Australia. When they were introduced to the area and got loose into the wild, the domestic house cat wreaked havoc on native species, killing animals, birds, small mammalian uh, marsupials, just wiping them out. They had no defense, no understanding of how to deal with a predator like this. And kitty cats, even to this day, are still considered an invasive species. People were asked, and I think they even have laws passed to make people keep them in their homes to protect the natural wildlife around them. You wouldn't think something as small and cute and cuddly as a kitty cat would be the bane of all living things in an area. But basically, they had no defense against a common house cat. And they could hunt with impunity across the land. And now it comes to the part of the story I want to talk about. And how I was aided by a marsupial human friend of mine in saving someone's life. There was a rare, very, very rare, throwback creature in Australia called the acid snake. Okay? Now you may have heard of spitting cobras. Cobras that spit venom. That's right. And you might know that venomous snakes inject poison through their fangs. And that constricting snakes have teeth like little barbs. And those teeth are curved. And they, as they swallow prey, they pull the creature back further and further into their mouth. And then they're curved back backwards so that the creature can't pull its way back out. The acid snake was a species that retained some of the qualities of both lines of snake. It had stubby little legs, which you might say, well, that's a lizard, but no. These legs were like flopping little baby arms and legs hanging off its body. They strictly used them for procreation purposes only. They still had the same mode of transportation or locomotion as, as a snake would and slithered around on their bellies. These snakes were so grotesque looking. They looked like a combination of a lizard with some kind of strange birth defect with these little stubbly flopping legs and they could go at a very fast rate on their bellies and their legs would flop in the air and it was really strange looking. And they had a squared off reptilian horned head, much like a, not a Gila monster, what's the other one? Yes, like that one. And they, they looked not like a horny toad or a, or a chameleon, but they had little tiny spikes on their head and their head was squared off more. And it was just a frightening creature. And they could rear up on their rear on their back 
of their body and splay their chest out like a cobra. And they could spit acid at you for defense. That's right. The acid snake had a venom that was highly toxic, but not poison like poisonous snakes. It was more like a combination of the Komodo dragon, kind of like a Komodo dragon, but it was an acid-based venom. It would spit the acid and it would burn your eyes, burn your skin, and you would run away. You would leave the creature alone. And the acid snake used this also and aided it in capturing prey. When they would come up to a sleeping creature, they would walk up and place their mouth on the creature sleeping. The acid would be used to raise the temperature of their mouth, which was immune to the toxins in their venom that was seeping from their teeth, from the glands in its body. And this acid would help warm, almost like a, um, almost like a um, topical pain reliever. And it would numb the creature that it was enveloping with its mouth. And these acids would leak down into your nerve cells and burn them out. And so you have this anesthetic type acid that's warm and matching your body temperature of a mammal. And the creature would pull more and more and more of you into its mouth. You're literally getting swallowed alive. And then the creature would bite down hard and the acids would start to penetrate through the skin the whole time your nerves being cut off your skin and blood vessels being cauterized by the acids literally burning off part of the creature's body and it would snap that part of your body off and it would slink away with a meal it did this because it realized it could eat parts of large mammals, megafauna, and leave them to keep on continuing living, and then feast off the creature again. A truly parasitic and horrific injury. The acid snake was the bane of the animal world. Animals walking around amputated legs and arms and sometimes tails. These creatures would hunt you and slowly, slowly eat away at you as it needed to feast, not devouring your whole body, especially for creatures that it was impossible to swallow. It would only take a bite out of you, and it was a horrific sight to behold. The Early Aborigines would kill these creatures upon sight, smash their eggs, 
They were considered a demon, a monster, some kind of witchcraft, some kind of supernatural creature that didn't belong on earth. And most of them were wiped out. Only small, small nests of these snakes still existed in little islands far off the coast of Australia and Tasmania. They are prized by collectors, but very few collectors realize the dangers of having an acid snake in their possession. That brings us to today. We had a strange case where a young man woke up with his lower leg just below the knee his foot and calf amputated in the middle of the night. His leg cauterized by some form of acid. Hardly a drop of blood on his bed sheets, but there were burn marks in the sheets from the acid as it dripped and leaked from the snake's mouth. We immediately knew we had a problem. This was the second case in a month. A woman woke up with her hand and part of her arm missing under same circumstances in the same apartment building. I knew we were dealing with the unusual and rare acid snake and it was feasting on these people. It had escaped the cage of its owner by spitting at him in anger and the acid slowly eating away at the edges of the aquarium that it was held in. After a while, the edges of the aquarium walls became brittle. The snake just moving around inside the aquarium popped a hole in the wall of its cage, and it easily escaped. The anger and frustration this creature felt towards its owner, who had no idea of the danger he had exposed himself to, became apparent when he woke up, realizing the acid snake he had brought home as a prized rare pet was enveloping his head for a quick meal. Needless to say, his suffering didn't last long as the snake slowly, methodically and with perfect precision decapitated his owner with a vengeance that almost gave you the thought the creature had a higher intelligence than it did turns out he was under the blankets it was the first warm fresh meal available to the creature. Why not? It thought. It took him off at the head. Nino's grisly as this sounds. Could you imagine waking up amputated, your leg missing, your arm burned off at the elbow? That's what these people were facing. And it was easy to track the creature to a degree. It was traveling through the ventilation ducts, burning holes in the covering of the ventilation ducts, 
finding a way into the apartments and then scurrying back the way it came. We tried setting up traps. We tried evacuating the building, surrounding it, isolating the building. We could not get the creature to come out. Weeks went by. People were complaining. They wanted to get back into their apartments. We couldn't disclose what the problem was. And people kept telling us their home, their rights. They had a right to go in there. And finally, one night, it actually happened. A man refused to stay outside the barriers, entered the quarantine building, and went to his apartment to sleep for the night. Lucky for him, we saw the light on. And lucky for him, a friend from down under a scientist and hunter a marsupial human came to my aid we entered the apartment complex he explained that you basically have two choices with an acid snake you can try to do what we're doing and never catch it they've learned to hide so well and blend in and they can go weeks, sometimes months, without a meal. And just live off of their body's stored energy. Or, you can set a trap. You can put out some bait. And believe me, he said, the creature will come. But it better have a heart, because they can tell if it's fake. Well, our guest had a, definitely had a heartbeat. And boy was it racing when we finally got to him. Luckily for this man, the hungry snake was spotted by him as he laid in his bed. And even though it lunged and attacked, knowing that it was seen and it was so hungry, it was too late. The man had reacted. He jumped up and was standing on the big ornate headboard on the top of his bed. The snake, not to be denied, curled up on the bed, reared up and spit poison into the man's face across his chest. In agony, he let go of his grip on the headboard and he fell down onto the mattress below. The snake curled up coiled around the man, positioned itself to swallow his arm flailing about, the pain from the acid in his eyes, his mouth burning across his chest. He was screaming bloody murder. He was just minutes away from death from the acid across his face or death from shock as he was about to witness his arm being cauterized at the elbow. Just then we broke into the room. The snake, almost as long as a human being's body, five and a half to almost six feet long, thick-bodied, short tail, reared up, saw us enter the room, and let go of the prey, curled up at the foot of the bed, and spat at both of us. 
Luckily, we had a plexiglass shield with us. We held the shield in front of us and the acid struck the shield. It immediately started to sizzle. This was a strong, strong acid. Immediately, the hunter that had come with me reacted quickly and pulled a strange firearm from his side. It looked like a Nerf gun that was going to shoot a Nerf ball at the snake. I didn't know what he was up to, and he immediately fired the pistol twice. A large net flew out of the gun, both striking the snake and slamming onto its face, enveloping the head and neck of the creature. He fired two more times to ensure that he had covered the snake's head with this envelope of gel-like netting. It was like a muzzle that sealed and hardened and stuck to the snake's head. He then holstered his weapon, immediately pulled out a very large knife, and started to approach the writhing, spinning, twisting creature. The creature couldn't breathe. He knew it. He said, help me for a minute. Hold it still. I have to be honest. I have an aversion to snakes. I took a cushion from the bed, and I held the snake down with it, not wanting to touch it little tiny arms and legs flailing. It looked like somebody had attached baby arms, baby hands, to this large, wide-bodied snake's hips and shoulders. So gross, so strange, so weird. Our victim lie there screaming, screaming for bloody murder. He said, quickly, hold it down so I can get the snake to breathe. And he took the knife and he literally carved out little holes for the snake's nose and nostrils so that it could breathe through the muzzle that had swallowed the snake's head. Once it could breathe, he then wrapped a small rope around its neck and he pinned the snake down to the headboard of the bed grabbed the victim, pulled him off the bed onto the floor, tried to calm him down, pulled a very large liter of water from his backpack and started to dump water all over his eyes, face, his chest to neutralize the acid. It was burning him. He was smoldering. He was almost on fire. His eyes... Though they were closed when he got struck, his eyes, solid red, burned around the edges. Luckily, he said, I can still see, I can still see. He still had a little bit of his vision. His face looked like it was pockmarked by the worst case of acne I'd ever seen. The snake slammed back and forth on the bed, writhing, screeching, making some kind of strange bellowing noise from its nostrils. He said, don't be distracted. We've got to get more water. Go to the bathroom. Use any container you have. Get me more water. We've got to rinse this off of him. We worked and worked and worked on the victim. 
until we could move him away from the puddle around him and we got most of the acid off. It neutralized quite quickly and eventually aid showed up, paramedics took over and he was treated for the severe burns on his body. His face wrapped, his eyes covered. The man was in complete terror and shock. He broke the curfew. He entered his home and all he found was imminent death before him. He was lucky to survive. I asked my friend, the marsupial human, what should we do with this creature? It's, it's, it's assaulted many people. It killed its owner. Should we have it euthanized? Well, it was such a rare creature. He begged us to let him take it back to Australia to release it into the wild. He said the worst part is, you've got a problem on your hand. And I said, what's that? Well, do you see how wide her body is? And she is a Sheila, I assure you. I looked down and went, oh no, this can't be true. He said, they don't hold their babies in very long and they do a live birth. We've got to get her back to Australia. Even the babies have the toxin and can escape just about any cage we put them in. It's in their breeding. It's in their species. I hate to tell you this, but there's a good chance there's a male partner loose in Chicago. So at night, when you're alone and it's dark, beware if you hear us. Hear a tongue. It might be her mate. The acid snake is still on the prowl. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. Did you like that story? It's a good one. Why are you looking at me? It's not my job to verify every weird and spooky story he tells. I will say that the scientist he mentioned had been to visit more than once. He's extraordinarily polite, like most of the marsupial humans I've met, but also willing to drop everything and tell a few stories of his own when circumstances permit. He's very serious about his work, but it is fascinating. Well, there are many strange animals in the world that are usually hidden from us. But I have nothing to say about the acid snake. That's the doctor's job. I promise my next story won't be scary. I don't like snakes either. There's th No, there's no such thing as an acid snake. I made it all up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just blew the whole story. 
Well, I didn't want to frighten you. I didn't even like telling the story. I had to touch a snake in it, too, like with a cushion, but still, yuck. We didn't actually capture the mail. It's it's a story. It's supposed to be like, ooh, he's still out there. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. Look, let, let me tell you a different story that might not be as frightening. Have I ever told you about the lost lighthouse up on Lake Erie? Have I? And the ghost of the lantern. You see, before electricity, there was a time when they lit candles. Not candles, they lit lamps on lighthouses with whale oil. That's right. Before Edison brought electricity to lighthouses, they used different types of fire, eventually getting up to using whale oil to light the lanterns that shined in the top of lighthouses to let boats know where the markers were on the shore to guide the boats at night. And sometimes whale oil wasn't always available in the Great Lakes region. You know, it was expensive, and it was relatively hard to get sometimes. Or you just ran out. So, an industrious lighthouse keeper talked to his wife about it, and the frustration of having to use substitute and different types of oils to try to light his lantern at night. He was always frustrated because... Even the hand lantern he used to come home in the morning before the sun was up would let run out of fuel. And then he would be walking home in the dark and he'd been hurt many times. His wife looked at the lantern and told him she might have an alternative for him. She knew of this old wives tale of blue light a cold light something that the Native Americans she knew growing up had taught her a cold cold light that gave no heat and as it burned off these rocks this cold light would illuminate their campsites at night but it was very dangerous when you introduced these rocks that they would find on this hillside to oxygen in the atmosphere. They would burn and never stop burning. You had to keep them in a sealed vessel. So she told the lighthouse keeper that if he wanted some of these rocks, she would go get them. But only under the condition that he would use the special sealed circular lamp that she gave him. He could transfer the rocks from his lantern to the lighthouse. And then he had to 
seal it back up. Or the rocks would burn forever in the atmosphere. Even in a sealed vessel of the lantern, they still burned for several hours until they used up every ounce of oxygen and atmosphere inside that lantern. He actually got good at handling the cold light. She would put several rocks in his lantern. And they would be extinguished. And as he walked to the lighthouse, he would open up the sealed vessel of the lantern, pull one rock out with his tongs that she had given him, and place it on the mantle of the lighthouse fire. It would immediately burst into this cold, bright blue flame, the rock releasing a bright, tall flame that worked much better. It was so bright. It was almost blinding, and it was perfect for his lighthouse. It didn't give off heat, so in the summer, it was more comfortable for him to work and maintain the lighthouse when he did most of his maintenance work, painting and repairing, fixing windows, fixing the glazing on windows and doors, painting. It was so much easier, and the blue light illuminated so powerfully, openly exposed to the atmosphere that it ran the lighthouse all night for weeks sometimes. It was a perfect solution for the lighthouse keeper, but all perfect excuses for circumventing problems. Sometimes there's a reason why people don't use them. There's a cost to be had with these technologies or these inventions. And sadly, the magic rocks, the blue light, the cold, cold flames of those rocks were actually a radioactive substance that was giving off radiation at an alarming rate. And the lighthouse keeper was exposing himself to this radiation and his wife was exposed to it constantly as she dug up new rocks to replace the old ones. Lesions tumors began to appear on the lighthouse keeper's body. By the time he realized it was the blue light that was causing these issues, it was too late. He succumbed to the cancerous growths on his body. His wife wept, her source of income gone. The new lighthouse keeper refused the rocks. He knew they were evil, some kind of witchcraft. They didn't understand radiation back then. His wife thought she too would succumb to the radiant power of the cold blue lights. But the furthest from the truth happened. Somehow in her body, maybe it was because she was a female, the lights transformed her. Her skin grew colder and colder, leathery, hard, 
and soon she started to glow at night. It was frightening. In the daytime, nobody really could notice it. She stayed covered up well. But at night, her body would start to glow. People could see it. It was almost as if the lights, the energy of the cold light had permeated her body from the exposure over time. Changed her. Slowly, she was unable to go to market, see a doctor, attend church. She was shunned. She was considered a witch and she was banished from the community. It didn't really matter. She didn't feel like she needed food anymore. She didn't even feel cold or hot. And at night she would find herself mesmerized by the wispy blue lights that came off of her skin. She went up into the hills, into her small dugout cave that she found the original rocks that the Native Americans had told her about. And she made a little place of rest there, slept during the day, and at night watched the blue lights dance off her body. Over time, her skin became more translucent, like glass. She could see the veins, the blood pumping through her body. She held up a small mirror and realized she could see the bones in her face. Soon, she was completely transparent. The only thing she could see was her glow of her body shape at night. She had become literally a will-o'-the-wisp, a creature of light, a spirit in living form, no longer eating, drinking, breathing. Had she died and not even realized she was a ghost? This went on for a while, but she grew lonely and more lonely. She feared the villagers would discover her and try to harm her. So she went to see the local priest. Her body still moved. She could hold and carry the lantern. So she brought a few rocks along, sealed inside, to try to convince the priest that that was the cause and maybe he could help her. By the time she reached the parsonage, she had realized the priest had spotted her and organized a mob. They tried to attack her, stone her, hit her with shovels, rakes, the like. They couldn't touch her, but oh, she could touch them. Their weapons passed through her translucent spiritual body, but she could reach out and grasp them. Her willpower strong when she grabbed them, they would explode into cold, icy flames. They would freeze like crystalline little 
knickknacks on a shelf. When they fell over, they would crumble break into a million pieces of crystal, dissipate, and turn back into a sludge of slaughtered humanity that they were. A pile of mud that used to represent a man. They quickly realized their mistake and started running. But she wasn't going to let the priest get away with this. She cornered him. Luckily for the priest, as evil as his intentions were, he did it out of ignorance, not understanding what was before him. He ran to the railroad tracks. She followed him, and suddenly, as her body touched the metal rail of the railroad tracks, her body made a connection to the planet, and all the energy that was her, whatever was her, got absorbed down into the planet. Her lantern fell to the ground, and she was absorbed into the ground. She literally, in an electrical sense, grounded herself by touching the metal rails that were attached to the ground. The priest turned and realized what happened. He took the lantern, kept it sealed, and hid it deep in the parsonage. He told the story from time to time about demons monsters, supernatural angels, spirits that live among us. All seemed well, but every once in a while, whenever there was an electrical storm, thunder, lightning, people would report the blue lady appearing on hilltops, appearing looking in their windows, scaring their children, always the same, translucent, covered in blue flame, the room cold, cold and icy as the flames licked around her body. The priest knew this was because of him. She was searching for something. She needed something. He only had one object that she could possibly be looking for. The terror she was causing children, women, farmers at night had to stop. On the eve of the next lightning thunderstorm, he took the lantern from its hidden spot, a Bible under one arm, and the lantern. He raised it, allowed atmosphere to go into the sealed vessel, and immediately the three little rocks inside burst into flames. He sealed it back up and went out into the hillside, watching for lightning strikes, trying to get as close as he could to them. His efforts paid off, soon in the distance, closing in at a fast pace, seeing the lantern. It was her, the spirit. She had returned. 
approached the minister. The priest, frightened, laid the lantern down on a rock, about waist high, and stepped back. The creature, reformed by the bolts of lightning striking all around the ground, adding energy and letting her reform herself, allowed her to walk up and pick up the lantern. She opened up the sealed vessel and pulled one small rock from inside, held it up in front of her face. The translucent nature of her body slowly evaporated. The glowing rock in her hand held before her. Now the blue flames quit licking her body, almost like the rock absorbed it. Almost like she was becoming whole again. Her body reformed. She stood in front of the priest. Naked as the day she was born. Her hair long and white. Her skin wrinkled. She was alive so long waiting for this moment. Aging so slowly but still aging nonetheless. And she looked at the priest as... Her arms started to shake as her reformed corporeal body started to fade and lose its strength, the life ebbing from her. She said thank you. The rock fell from her hands, and she lay there, dead on the ground. The priest picked up the stone with tongs, placed it back inside the lantern, and gave the dead woman a Christian burial. He didn't understand everything that had happened. He didn't understand how it all came about. But he did know that he had made right a wrong that he had done. He always promised himself if he became sick or ill that death was coming and his eternal reward of heaven was coming. He would pull that lantern out of its hidden spot again, lift the sealed glass of the lantern, pull a rock and hold it in his hand, and hope the blue lady come down like the angel she was and quickly painlessly take him to heaven that day was coming soon the overwhelming fear of it absorbed his body and mind and time he wrote it all down and that's the story I just told you the story of the blue Oh, that was very good. Did you like that story? I did. That wasn't too scary, was it? That's probably why. The legend of the blue lady. Her magic lantern. You didn't like that story. It wasn't scary. Well, I didn't. You told me you didn't like the snake one. So I thought I'd tell something a little less frightening. Gross. 
Oh, now you've all got him going. You want a scary story. You want an original cryptid. Whatever comes next. Oh my god. It is not my fault. Then you want to hear about the Mosquito Man. Now, I don't know if there is such a thing as a Mosquito Man anywhere else, but there is a Mosquito Man deep in the swamps of Ohio. Do you want to hear that story? There's not much backstory to it. There is a man who is literally a human mosquito. No, not a vampire, not a blood-sucking zombie monster. He is a mosquito man. A man who lived in the swamps and hunted water moccasins and hunted down cougars, bobcats, black bears in the hills deep in Ohio. I know it's a small state, but it's a very vast ecosystem. The wide plains where you can grow corn and soy and wheat. The Great Lakes region is like a north coast for the United States, almost like our own private ocean. And then, of course, we have the Ohio River bordering us at the south. And there's hills, small mountains in Ohio. And this is where the Mosquito Man hides, deep in the swampy valleys between those mountains and hills. He's a creepy, creepy man. He wears a costume like a beekeeper. Not to keep the bugs out, you see, but to keep the mosquitoes in. Oh, what a twist. His bloated costume, full of the vermin. A man who somehow, through a curse, or through some arcane alchemy or science, developed a symbiotic relationship with the dreaded, blood-sucking mosquito. Maybe he needed them to suck the toxins, the cancers, from his body to keep him alive. All I know is his bloated, swollen, sealed, netted beekeeper outfit, duct taped at every seam, his wrists, the ankles. He looked like a bloated balloon, the bugs swarming around inside his mask, the netting across his face. A mask over his mouth so he didn't swallow them or literally breathe them in. To see a man walk up to you with a nest of mosquitoes inside and around his face, constantly biting, drawing blood from him, mosquitoes actually lighting on his eyes, sucking the blood from his body, 
what kind of strange blood disease would have a man endure this kind of savagery, this demonic association with this tiny little bug. And it got worse. He liked his privacy. He liked to be alone. He used traps to capture new, lively mosquitoes. And he used a vacuum system to suck them up into his costume. He smelled atrocious. He could never bathe, never release his hoard out by unzipping the duct-taped zipper down his chest. He had to stay sealed so that they would work their magic and constantly bite and drink whatever it was that was preventing him from living a normal life. He was a disgusting creature, but could we help him? He frightened people. They didn't like him. He looked like a science fiction monster combined with Frankenstein's creature. A creation of his own. He turned himself into an abomination of humanity. And every once in a while a mosquito would escape from his well-sealed costume. And he would always laugh. Don't let it bite you. Ooh, don't let it bite you. Ooh, almost like it would transmit whatever was in him to you, but it must not be true, or he wouldn't joke about it, he wouldn't laugh about it, he wouldn't make fun of it. And how do you know that was a mosquito that escaped from his costume? Was he just lying? Was he just trying to frighten you? As we sit around this campfire, I bet you're cringing. Every once in a while, a mosquito zips up by your ear, by your face. You swat. You jump. You spray yourself with DEET. Hope goes away. You light another candle and another candle, trying to chase them away. You throw leaves on the fire to make it smoke chase out the mosquitoes. It's kind of frightening when something so tiny can bring so much terror to a human being that a creature so small would hold so much control over something so much bigger. It's almost like the elephant afraid of the mouse, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it's like. But this story, sadly, Maybe sadly, maybe perfectly, ends somewhat abruptly and maybe with a surprise ending, I don't know. There was a young man, and he was very self-absorbed, a very selfish boy. He fell in love with a young girl. She was pretty, long blonde hair laid flat on her 
back. Her hair was baby soft, long, beautiful, blonde hair. She couldn't do anything with it. Would never stay in a bun. It would always escape any device she bought. And she was sweet and shy and quiet and not used to talking to boys who thought she was attractive. She was just too shy, too quiet. It was funny who she could talk to and who she couldn't talk to because the boys she liked, she just couldn't bring herself to talk to them. The boys she just found as friends was easy to talk to. And it just drove her crazy. So it was no surprise that when this soulful absorbed, selfish boy eyed her up, and she found she could speak to him quite openly. He mistook it as attraction, as her liking him. And he began to pursue her, and he began to fixate on her. He would bring a camera to school and take photos of her when she wasn't looking, and it was quite disturbing and frightened her a little bit, but... She thought he was just being funny. And he said he was going to give the photos to the yearbook committee. She told him not to, but she said it's okay, just quit doing it. But he didn't. He kept taking photos of her and spying on her and would stand behind trees when she was walking home. To be quite honest, he was a little creepy jerk. Jerky jerk face, that's what she called him. And she was so tired of it. But he was harmless. He never tried to hurt her. He never tried to trick her into coming into his mom's house alone. or He never tried to enter her house when her parents weren't home. And one night he said that he had just got his driver's license. And he wanted to take her for a ride with other friends. And he wondered if he could pick her up. Well, she said no several times. But he was so persistent and he was kind of a friend. He was weird and dorky, but he never bothered her. He never harmed her. What would be so bad about going out with a car full of friends? Maybe it would be good for her. She could meet somebody. She could make a friend. So she said it was okay if he picked her up. He picked her up and she realized as soon as she jumped in the car, she made a mistake. He had a knife on his lap and he locked the doors and locked the windows. There was nobody else in the car but him. He backed out as she pounded on the window and waved to her mother. Her mother thought she was waving goodbye. And her mom simply waved her off, saying goodbye, have a good time, and kept on walking. Not realizing the gravity of the situation, he pulled the knife out and immediately pressed it to her leg, told her to stop it, sit down, put your belt on. I'm in charge now. The boy had a, a very overdeveloped sense of himself. 
And on the long drive up into the hills of Ohio, far away from everyone, he told her a rambling story of how she had rejected him. After he decided she was the one, and he was not going to take no for an answer anymore, that she was going to perform certain duties, certain acts, certain things were going to happen, and she was going to like it. She was going to be his girlfriend. She was going to do as she was told. And if she didn't like it, well, he was going to throw her down in a snake-infested swamp where nobody would ever find her. Her parents would never find her body. And he raised the knife up and said, I'm not afraid to use it. She was so terrified. Could you imagine a young girl, barely 16, being in a situation like this? And he said, if you try to run away or you escape, I'm going to kill myself. And it's going to be your fault. I'll tell everyone that it was you and it was your fault. She was so terrified. He was insane. Well, of course, kill yourself. I'll escape. And he got more and more angry. He realized she thought he was stupid. That she never really loved him. And then he said that she was going to do everything he told her to do at the point of a knife. And then he reached down in the side of the car and he pulled out a small twenty-two revolver. And you will do as you're told now. Now you're going to listen to me. And he laughed mockingly as he held up the gun. He almost wrecked the car as he went back on a dirt road to a strange, abandoned place. A small cabin. An unkept, abandoned farm. He told her to get out by sliding over and coming out the side, the driver's side door with him. And he took her up to the porch and made her sit on the steps, the broken worn out, rotten steps on the porch, and he started to lecture her, holding his knife in one hand and twirling his gun in the other. She was so terrified she started to cry, and this only served to make him more angry. He took the actual gun and stuck it in his pants, down the front of his pants, and slapped her very hard over the head, not across the face. He took his hand and slapped it down on top of her head, really hard, grabbed her by the hair, and shook her head by her hair. She screamed it hurt so bad, and she reached up with both hands and grabbed his fist full of hair and tried to stop him. She told him, stop, you're hurting me. And he threw her back, on the steps and she banged her arm and cut her elbow and started to cry even more. He told her to shut up or she was really going to get it. Shut up. And right then there was a noise inside the house. It wasn't abandoned at all. Who's out there? They heard and the door opened. And right before them 
stood the mosquito man. If this young girl wasn't terrified enough, the mosquito man was standing right behind her. Oh my god. She had a serial killer in the making standing over her with a gun and a knife. He'd already assaulted her horribly. She was cut. She was bruised. Her hair was knotted up in his hand, torn free from her head. And now, right behind her, was the Mosquito Man. In all his strange accoutrements and costuming, he was breathing heavy. Why are you here? What are you doing to her? What do you think you're doing? The young boy said, Go back inside, old man, if you know what's good for you. And he pulled the revolver from his waistband and pointed it at the mosquito man. The girl cringed. He cocked the hammer on the revolver of the twenty-two pistol. And he actually mocked and laughed at the mosquito man. I'll put one right between your eyes, old man. I'll put one right between your eyes. The mosquito man told the young girl, get up, get behind me. And they squared off. He told her, if you want to live, go inside. Close the screen door behind you and lock the door. She was so terrified, she immediately did what he told her. She pulled the screen door shut, latched it, and then slammed the door shut behind her, locking it and running as fast as she could. The boy said, Oh, you interrupted my plans. Well, now it's between me and you, isn't it? And I've got something for you right here. And he aimed the gun at the mosquito man. The Mosquito Man said, I have something for you, too. And I don't think you're going to like it. Have fun trying to kill me. With that gun. He reached up. And he pulled away the duct tape. From the zipper across the neck area of his costume. And with one long pull, he pulled the zipper all the way down to the crotch of his pants and opened his costume. Millions of mosquitoes escaped from inside his costume. An explosion of mosquitoes enveloped the young man. The costume deflated like a balloon, crumbled onto the ground as every last mosquito escaped to breathe the fresh air of freedom and enveloped the young boy. He wildly fired his gun, but by this time he had realized his mistake. 
A gun and a knife might work well against a 16-year-old girl or a fellow human being, but it was absolutely worthless against a swarm of tiny mosquitoes. He swatted. He spun. He tried to roll on the ground. It was too late. They were biting him everywhere, every inch of his skin. His shirt rolled up. They would bite his back, his belly. He could feel them on every inch of his body, down his legs, up his pants, down his shirt, all over his mouth. He screamed out in pain and swallowed a fistful of mosquitoes inside his mouth, down his nose, his eyes, his ears. It wasn't long before it was over. The young girl hid behind a chair in the mosquito man's house. She heard some rustling outside the door after the screams and the gunfire stopped. She didn't know what had happened. and She awaited her fate. The house was so dirty and unkempt, hiding behind that chair... It was a house of horrors, and she just wanted it to be over. Maybe she was in shock. Maybe the kind words of go inside and lock the door gave her some sense of hope that maybe he wouldn't kill her. Maybe he would let her go. Maybe he would let her go. Maybe he would let her go. She kept saying over and over and over again. Soon there was a knock at the door. Don't worry. It's just me. It was the voice of the mosquito man. She could hear their jangle of keys. And he knocked again. Don't worry. I'm unlocking the door. This is my house. Just stay where you are. Don't move. You're going to be all right. He opened the door. Sealed up again in his beekeeper outfit. The mosquitoes inside the netting buzzing furiously, swarming around his face. He took his own keys and laid them on a coffee table nearby the door and walked over to her. He produced a set of keys. These are from the young man who brought you. I don't know if you can drive, but I suggest you take that car and you go back home. You can tell the police where to find the body. I'll explain everything when they get here. She just stood there looking for a minute. And then true terror grabbed her. She ran up, grabbed the keys without even looking at him. The buzzing, the buzzing, the buzzing inside his costume becoming unbearable for her. She opened the door and ran out. There, laying on the ground, right where she had last seen him, was the young boy who brought her there to harm her. Bloated, solid red, a million bites all over his body, his mouth gaping open, blood dripping from his eyes. She screamed and ran past him, got inside the car, started it, 
and with all her ability, tried to back up, turn around, and escape the property. She eventually found a gas station and in terror told the people there what had happened and the police came to comfort her. An ambulance went by, then a fire truck, several police cars. The police assured her that everything was fine, everything was taken care of. And they said, it's a good thing he took you where he did. You might be dead right now, young lady. And she said, well, what are you going to do about him? What are you going to do about the Mosquito Man? What, what, what are you going to do about him? And they said, nothing. He, he saved your life. The real monster is in a body bag on the ground. We hope you understand that. She thought about it for a while. And that's when she realized... She probably shouldn't tell these stories to people. Maybe she should just forget it ever happened. Her parents came and collected her and took her home. It was several weeks later. She was sitting out at a barbecue, recovered and forgetting all the past events of the weeks before enjoying herself by a fire, much like you are right now. She looked down at her arm, and on her forearm, between the tiny, delicate, blonde hairs on her arm, was a mosquito feasting on her blood. Her automatic reaction was to raise her hand to swat it, and she stopped herself. No. She told herself, I'm going to let this go. And she sat back, didn't move an inch, waited for the mosquito to finish feeding, and watched it fly away. that's all for tonight. No, I can tell we have several people who want to go snuggle up warm and safe in bed behind their mosquito netting. I'm not going to stay up for another hour talking about the psychology and biology of the mosquito man, and neither are you. Look, Milo has already recruited people to help put the campfire out and Marvin's gathering up the leftover food. Yes, it has been lovely. I am so glad we've been able to spend time together this summer, especially to celebrate the podcast's third anniversary today. Thank you for being here with us, through everything. It truly makes us happy 
every time you join us for ASMR Tirana the Whale. When you share this podcast with someone, review it, or write a post, or leave a comment, it means a lot to Dr. Andrew Michaels and to me. Those small things really do help our podcast, and it has been exciting to watch our audience grow. Thank you for listening, for participating, and for letting us lull you to sleep. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library of over 800 videos at youtube.com slash Links to connect with us on social media and to take a look at our merchandise can be found in the show notes. The theme song, Atlantis, is by Jason Shaw of audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tirardohuejo at gmail.com or left on the Tirardohuejo YouTube community page. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels and his entire staff, thank you.